Hey everybody, it's Rob. Welcome to Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, or the podcast normally known as Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet. What you are about to listen to is an interview that I did with Dr. Richard Beck. Dr. Beck is a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University in Texas, and he has written several just amazing books, including his most recent book, which is called Trains Jesus and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. Now, I know JB and I mostly talk about Bruce Springsteen on this podcast, but there's a lot of overlap between the kind of work that Bruce does and the kind of work that Johnny Cash did. And they, in fact, they've even covered each other's songs. And we've even talked about, uh, at the very least, Give My Love to Rose, which was a cover that Bruce did of Johnny Cash's song uh, that we did way back whenever we, we were in the, uh, in the G's. Anyway, so there's a lot of overlap between Johnny Cash and Bruce Springsteen, so this felt like a pretty easy match. Anyway, uh, that's what you're about to listen to. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the interview. What's the name of it? It is called, it is called Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet. And uh, the format was, until recently... Uh, we we would go through every Bruce Springsteen song one by one, you know, in alphabetical order. But we finished. We we hit um, zero and Blind Terry. So we've we've run out of, of the original master list. So we're, did, did you go, did you go back and do the Western stars? We have not. That's a great question. We have not yet. Uh, what we're basically we capped it with the stuff that had already existed. And so what we're going to do next year is we're going to do an album by album beginning in January. Right now we're just sort of filling it in with like patron interviews and stuff like that. But we're going to we're going to do album by album beginning in January. And that will take us pretty much all the way through 2020 because there's a rumor that there's going to be I say let I me mean, Springsteen has confirmed that there will be another album in 2020. So that will that will give us more content and then there's another rumor that he has like a a deleted songs box set that he's just been sitting on for a while that he might release sometime next fall. So we're going to do album by album so he can sort of like build up like this, this season's body of work. And then we'll go back and get all of Western stars. Have you listened to Western stars? Did you, I, and the last time we talked, I think you would listen to the the singles that he had released. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, it was very different, but I enjoyed it a lot. Have you have you gotten the album? Do people need uh-huh. to get yeah, this yeah, for yeah, you yeah. for Christmas? I, I, I it was kind of I uh, it was my summer listening. Yeah, I just listened to it during the summer. Hey, let's just say I live in you know we live in Texas, man, and so those big orchestral pieces as you're driving out, you know, in the big open spaces, I loved it. It's pretty beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's very different. I mean, and that's what I mean. Uh, that's kind of what I liked about it. Yeah. Yeah, well, and he uh, he continued to say like, "Don't expect this to sound anything like anything I've previously done." And he was right; like, it's it's very very different. Yeah, I had I think the thing that most most startling is those really high notes he hits on. Uh, there goes my miracle. Was oh, it? There goes my miracle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. He goes very high on. Here goes my yeah, miracle. Yeah, yeah, that it just doesn't sound like him at all. <laughs> yeah, it's, he's crooning, right? Like it, yeah, it sort of sounds very, like yeah. almost like a Roy Orbison kind of feel. Yep. yep. So I enjoyed it. I mean, I know I know it got mixed reviews, you know, from from different places, but I liked it a lot. Well, there, there's a certain you contingency know. of Bruce's fandom that just wants every album to be born to run. You know, like yeah. they just they just want the same sort of thing. In fact, we we were talking about how Rolling Stone magazine only gave the album four stars, whereas like which which is like that's a great review, but. When it comes to Bruce Springsteen albums, Rolling Stone magazine, we, the joke we make on the podcast is that Rolling Stone magazine may have been the best man at Bruce's wedding. Like mm-hmm. he's like every, everything they say about him is just glowing and that only four stars. That's a real that's a, that's a hard shot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, we're not I mean, 
we're on a Bruce Springsteen podcast, but we're really here to talk about Johnny Cash. I'll do like a little intro before we start. So we all right, let's do it. Roll into it. Um, but no, I mean like uh, bef- we're already we're in it right now. Everything that we just talked about is, is, is on gonna, the podcast. It's on the podcast. Why not? I don't know. Let's do it. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would just mess it up if I tried to make it more official sounding. So um, anyway, so we're here with Richard Beck. We're, we're talking about uh, his new book, Trains, Jesus, and Murder, The Gospel According to Johnny Cash. There's a lot of Johnny Cash, Bruce Springsteen fandom overlap. And so this felt like a really natural sort of fit for, for our podcast. But the question really is, like, you have written books that deal with I mean, really, some of the deepest questions of humanity, like our relationship with death, how we think about people on the margins of society, the problem of evil, and now this book that is about Johnny Cash. So at at what point did you decide, like, this is going to be the next thing in your body of work that you're really going to attack? Well, I think it kind of came about by by accident. So your listeners who don't know me um, should know that I teach a Bible study on Monday nights at a maximum security prison north of my hometown in Abilene, Texas. About 50 inmates every Monday night I lead a Bible study for. And so there's about a 20-minute drive outside of the city out to the prison each night. And a couple of years ago, I had bought uh, Cash's At Folsom Prison, the album. I was just a kind of a mild fan of Cash. I knew a little bit about him, but I don't think I owned an album of his. And so I bought that album just because I thought it would be fun to listen to on the way out to the prison each night. So I just listened to that, that live concert at a prison, driving to my own prison back and forth. And that that album hooked me, and I got at San Quentin to follow up with it. And then right around that time, Robert Hilburn wrote what a lot of people think is the definitive now biography of Cash. So because I was listening to those prison concerts, I wanted to know a little bit more about kind of what was going on in the background. And I read that biography. And as I read through his life story and kind of then began listening through his music, because as I read the biography, I started kind of listening my way at each phase of his life. I would kind of buy the album, listen to that music. And so I kind of listened my way and read my way through his whole life and um, just saw a lot of gospel themes in his life struggles and in his music. And I just saw a lot of resonances with what I was experiencing out in the prison on Monday nights. And so uh, when my publisher approached me for a book idea, I go, I've been thinking a lot about Johnny Cash lately. And uh, that was the project they picked. And I ended up writing a book about the man in black. Interesting. So I, I assume I, I assume this was after Johnny Cash had passed away. So like the body of work was pretty much definitively set, right? Like so he was not releasing new stuff at this point, obviously. Yeah, this was only a few years ago. So okay. he had yeah, he had passed already at that point. So like you're so you went from knowing just like basically what most just anybody who's seen a Walking Phoenix movie might know about Johnny Cash to becoming a guy who could literally write a book about Johnny Cash. Like that's that's a big journey. Yeah, it took a couple of years. Yeah. And when I said yes to the book, I realized that I had functionally said yes to a biography, um, which should have been obvious to me. But, you know, after I said yes, I realized I couldn't just make theological reflections about Johnny Cash because a a new reader uh, or somebody new to his music would not know about his life or the context. So I would have to know enough about his life to tell his story and to tell about the background of the songs so that any first time uh, Johnny Cash fan could pick up the book and kind of get get them to get, get enough background. But I also had to realize I had to write the book that a hardcore fan is going to pick it up. And so I needed to write something that wasn't just superficial, that that would surprise them. So I had to dig up nuggets and perspectives and stories that that even a hardcore fan would really enjoy it as well. And so to do that, to write a good kind of introductory biography, but also a 
deep textured biography for the hardcore fan. Yeah, for a couple, about four years, I just read everything about Cash, listened to his music constantly, took a deep dive, and then came up and wrote the book. Wow. Well, and I think that's one of the interesting things, the sort of overlaps between or a similarity that Johnny Cash and Bruce Springsteen have, which is that like all the songs are not like on the page autobiographical, but at the same time, they reflect a really honest sort of human search. You know what I mean? And so there's sort of this thing of like a Bruce Springsteen song is is a narrative about somebody else's life. But he's he's putting so much of his own stage of life into it. You know what I mean? Like if you if you listen to the river, like there there are songs in there about like people who are stuck in debt and jobs and like a you know a couple who gets pregnant at seventeen and none of those things actually happened to Bruce Springsteen, but those are all like coming of age stories that he wrote while he was coming of age. And so Johnny Cash, it sort of seems as the same way. Like Johnny Cash never actually spent time in prison, but you would never know that to listen to his music because he's so empathically identified with people who who had been on that journey, right? Like and so like you said. Like it's impossible to to just like peel apart Johnny Cash from his music because his his own humanity is so much a part of of the music that he makes. Is that is that a fair way to describe it? Oh yeah, and I think that's the way with any creative artist that where they are at their phase of life, what their own wrestling with is that that's going to find that's going to find its way into their art. So um, you know, even like a song like Sunday Morning Coming Down. Uh, which is a song written by Chris Christopherson uh, that Cash recorded is obviously a, a song that Cash identified with because of his own struggles with substance abuse. Hmm. And then even in late in his life, when he does the cover of Trent Reznor's song "Hurt," you know that song song is sung retrospectively, looking back over his whole life. So you know, so you can grab different um, moments in his life. Even "I Walk the Line" was a song he wrote for his first wife, Vivian, pledging fidelity to her. So yeah, you can see all along how his concerns, his interests, his life is is leaking back into his artistry. Yeah, well, and that's that's sort of the interesting thing about the book too. Like, I picked up the book expecting a theological sort of exploration of Johnny Cash's music, which which it is. But like you said, like the first couple of chapters are pretty much just like you need to know what this guy's life was before these songs are going to make sense to you. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. they're nice songs that you can listen to out of context, but understanding where they come from and who he was when he was recording and performing them, that matters. And so at, at what point did you sort of realize, like, I'm going to have to become like an official biographer of Johnny Cash or else this this book is just not going to be what it needs to be? I think what I tried to write the first chapter. <laughs> oh, really? Like like that or yeah. like very quickly? Well, yeah, very quickly I realized that um, if I'm going to embed the song in his story, I would need to tell that story with some authority. I, I couldn't just like read one biography and just copy what that biographer said. I mean, again, it's going to have to be textured. So I had to read his – Cash has wrote two autobiographies. His, his uh, family members have said many things in many interviews. There's been a lot of critical writing about his work. And then many biographies have been written about him. And so I quickly realized that I needed to tell his story. In my previous books, I'm, I'm telling my story mm. from the first person. The, and when I sat down to write that first chapter, I realized I got I to gotta know his story so well that I can make very precise and, uh, and uh, in-depth kind of observations and connections between his music and the, and the theological observations I'm drawing out. Did you find – because I feel like Johnny Cash is one of those guys that over time a lot has been – like a lot of ink has been spill, spilled trying to sort of understand who he was and like his his body of work. And so did you find as you went doing your research, like was the well deeper than you expected it to be or um, – and, and also at, was there ever concern for 
I'm going to go through all this and like, am I going to be able to say anything new after I've explored like this giant ocean's worth of content that's already been written about this guy? Well, I think there's been a lot of written about him, but, but I think I was surprised that there hadn't been a ton written from the angle of this particular book, which is, which is a kind of a deep dive into his theology and, yeah. and, and also given the theological lens that I'm bringing. So, uh, so obviously I have my, my, my take on both Johnny Cash and I also have my take on the gospel. And so there wasn't anything out there that I saw. There had been some things on his spiritual life, his spiritual legacy, but mainly reflecting at a, at a deep, at a, at a, I want to say superficial, but just reflecting on his Christianity, mm. that he was a Christian. He sang gospel music. Um, he had a conversion experience uh, coming out of his addiction. So so people had kind of traced that general theme of faith through his music and his life. But what I was doing in this book is something more specific about the gospel, which was a little bit more theologically precise than just he was a man of faith and that he experienced grace in his life. So it was a hermeneutical activity where I had to be interpretive of both the gospel. What is the gospel? Because obviously in America today, if you ask, you know, if you if you walk through the Christian landscape, opinions would differ about what is the heart of the gospel. Mm. And then you're going to have, as you know, you know, dealing with your podcast on Bruce Springsteen, you know, people have different takes on what they think an artist is. They have, you know, they have a critical angle upon what their work is. Um, and so, so anyway, there was a ton to get through to read, but as far as like the particular analysis I was bringing to it, there wasn't anything that I saw that was going to draw out the messages that I was going to talk about. Yeah. I think that's right. And as I was reading it, because the first chapter, the first two chapters are very like like straightforward biography, which which is sort of like a primer on before we can go any further, you need to know who this guy was and where he came from. But the the deeper into the book I got, the more I realized like, oh, this is a very consistent part of your body of work specifically, because um, my personally, my, my favorite book of yours is is called Unclean. Um, for, for the listener, if you have not read Richard Beck's book, Unclean, stop what you're doing. After you've read Trans Jesus and Murder, please go read Unclean. Um, Unclean is is so profound and so important. It's, it was one of the most important books that I read before we started our church, because what it does is it really challenges how we see people who are traditionally sort of um, either left on the margins intentionally or unintentionally, or that the groups of people, like specifically people of faith, decide like this group of people does not belong in the front row and this per- like, or even in the building at all, and. And, and, and it's so fascinating to me that, like, reading Trans Jesus and Murder, what you've done is you've sort of taken all this theology that you sort of brought to the service with Unclean, and you're like, maybe Johnny Cash was getting at this a long time ago, you know, and sort of connecting it to this unbelievable, like, legend of music to the thing that you've been trying to say really since you wrote your first book, right? Like, the idea of maybe we need to rethink how we view people who um, exist on the margins, yeah, and that goes to the point I was saying earlier about what what is the gospel? Like, yeah. what, so what's your angle on it? And and so the big theme of the book, uh, I think the biggest theological piece of the book is this, the section on sinners and solidarity, mm. and how the gospel is at its root God standing with uh, the marginalized and the oppressed in the world, and and so if that's what the gospel is, then I think Johnny, the gospel according to Johnny Cash is just taking a long look. And I think Springsteen's the same kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. He looks to the margins of society. So you take a song like The River, but you also take a song like Johnny Cash's um, Folsom Prison Blues, 
where they're both looking towards the incarcerated or they're looking to the underemployed or the unemployed, the people, guys stuck in a dead end factory job. And we're, and we're going to, we're trying to find grace or tell their stories. Minimally, if, if their stories don't even have a happy ending, you are at least trying to articulate their pain and stand in solidarity with their pain. And I think that's where Cash's music and Springsteen, Springsteen's music are both at their gospel best when they are trying to give voice to the voiceless, speak for the margins, speak for the press. Or as Cash says in, in the song, Man in Black, right? I, I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. Yeah. And so if that's the gospel, giving voice to the oppressed, then Cash's music is just very deeply theological um, in ways that might surprise us. Yeah. Well, and and to that, like as I was reading your chapter on, on the album Bitter Tears, which I I was fully unaware of. Like I knew I knew the song The Ballad of Ira Hayes because it's on the Greatest Hits compilation. I did not know about this album Bitter Tears because it and you talk about this in the book that it, the whole thing is an indictment of how Native Americans have been treated in the history of this country. And as I was reading that chapter, I thought like, "Oh, 30 years later, Bruce Springsteen makes an album called The Ghost of Tom Joad, which is all about the solidarity between um, people who, like like the poor and um, people who, like refugees and migrant workers. And so, like, really, and connecting it to, obviously, uh, The Grapes of Wrath through through the, the notion of Tom Joad. And so the, it's the idea of, like, yeah, Br- Bruce Springsteen is a direct descendant of Johnny Cash in that he's going he's gonna to tell these stories and write these songs at, as a way of saying there are people that you, you may never see. But you, but you are seeing me because I have a very loud microphone, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to amplify these voices for you, and for you know on their behalf. And I and and so like that was another piece of connected tissue. Can you talk a little bit about Bitter Tears? Like I again, I was fully unaware of this album, and now it it becomes one of my favorite parts of the whole book is the chapter where you talk about this. Yeah. So in the mid '60s, Cash did a concept album called Bitter Tears, where he basically it's a it's a collection of protest songs. Um, articulating the experience of Native Americans in the United States, and it's it's a it's a searing, gut wrenching um, album where he he just sings about Native American and Indigenous people's pain and and the oppression and the exploitation that they have experienced at the hands of the American Empire, and uh, it, it became a kind of a point of tension because Cash really cared about this album. And he cared about the Native American experience, but it wasn't getting much airplay. And, and it's not surprising, right? It's it's a tough album to listen to. It, it makes you uncomfortable as you listen to it. And so he literally took out a an ad in Billboard magazine calling out the DJs and the radio managers for failing to play this, the music on the, on the radio. So not only did he record this whole album trying to, again, stand with and express solidarity with uh, Native peoples, uh, he kind of – spent some social capital trying to get airplay and a fight for this fight for this album to get uh, to get on the airwaves. Uh, it was partly successful, but he offended a lot of people in and how hard he pushed the Nashville music establishment uh, on the album is and this is 1964, right? So this is four mm-hmm. years before life from Folsom prison. Yeah. And it's and so he has up, up until now, he's sort of been kind of on the circuit with like, like you mentioned, he was on Sun Records with Elvis and. It's, and I, I know that there was some overlap between him and Buddy Holly for a little while. And so, like, this is – obviously, like, Bitter Tears is a major shift. And so does he lose part of his audience and or does he gain different, a different audience? Like, do, does this naturally lead to Live from Folsom Prison? Well, I think it definitely – 
it definitely for him, I think as, as a part of his artistic vision, he had been singing songs like this because even before Bitter Tears, he'd been doing concept albums that kind of focused on uh, the marginalized. So Ride This Train, Blood, Sweat and Tears. So expressing more of kind of his native Arkansas. He grew up during the Depression. So a little bit more about kind of um, poor people in the South. Yeah. Bitter Tears is definitely – a much more lasered focus on a very particular population, a very particular problem with Native Americans. But so I think you can draw a, a clean line in what he was doing with his music all the way up to Folsom Prison. I think he'd been on that journey for for quite some time. Um, but but he was losing listeners in in the sense that at Folsom Prison uh, came at a really fragile time in his career. He was on a low ebb at that point, uh, and Columbia was getting a little worried about. Um, his commercial viability uh, and uh, that 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 album kind of kind of uh, kind of shot him to the top of kind of cultural relevance and popularity again so there was kind of a slow ebb away from his music um, uh, you know during these years he had he saw some declining sales he loved the music he was producing but there was some uh, he wasn't electrifying audiences like he was in the sun years with like Folsom Prison Blues or I Walked the Line. Yeah. So there's not a huge, not a lot of huge hits off of Bitter Tears or Ride This Train. Not a lot of people calling um, the radio station asking for the ballad of Ira Hayes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just yesterday, I listened to your interview with with our friend Luke Norsworthy because I wanted to make sure, like, I, I didn't want to ask all the same questions, and so I just wanted to make sure, like, we were going to maybe go. But you you brought something up in that interview that I thought was really interesting. That I thought would be that, to me, this is one of the eternal questions of any good artist, and and it's the it's the question of living inside the tension between art and commerce, and the idea that you have an audience, and there are people who are paying for you to make something new, but then there's also because because Johnny Cash and so many other songwriters like him have a thing that they want to say. They have to sort of figure out how do I say the thing that I want to say while not going broke, you know, and, and not costing my, like my, and not at the expense of my own audience or, or my, my own audience or, or supporters or record label or whatever. And so what do you, I, I, I don't even know what the question is. Like, obviously John and Cash had a really interesting relationship with this, but also like, what, what's your perspective on this? Like as, what is the artist's responsibility to his or her audience? And in what ways does Johnny Cash fulfill that responsibility? And in what ways does he like say, well, I'm, I'm going to say what I have to say anyway, regardless of who goes with me. Yeah. And I guess we might make a distinction between entertainers and artists. I think mm -hmm. that a lot of people are out there are entertainers and all they want to do is entertain. I think somebody like Cash or Springsteen or Bob Dylan or, um, we, we would use the word artist for them. Yeah. And, and, and that is to say they're trying to say something or do something that is um, creative and that maybe is truthful. And so maybe that's the issue. What's the, what's the, what's the relationship between entertaining and speaking the truth mm -hmm. as we see it? And, and again, the truth doesn't always have to be a truth about social justice. It can just be a truth about the human condition. Um, like I think the river is one of the most – gut-wrenching songs I've ever heard in my life from Springsteen. Yeah. And it's not about social justice. It is. I mean, it's about factories and, you know, but it's just, but the the kind of desperation in that song is just, just honest and true. And I don't know if that's a song that people are just going to love to tune into because it's kind of a sad song. But um, anyway, so how, yeah, how do you strike that balance? I just think artists will do it differently. I think that's that's why there's the constant tension in artistic communities about selling out and going commercial. Yeah, uh, 
and and some people I think kind of tilt toward the entertainment more. You know, they just want to make records and maybe here or there they'll use their social capital. But sometimes it can be done kind of cheaply or tritely because I think like Taylor Swift got a little bit dinged in her last album, kind of speaking out for LGBTQ issues with um, with one of her songs. And a lot of people thought it was like little little late to the show Hmm. and and done a little too – easily you know like like it didn't cost her anything yeah in, in 2019 to kind of make that stand now if you had made that stand in 2009 right it might have been a little bit more relevant so some so sometimes you can kind of see you know entertainers speak up in a way that is still kind of a part of their brand yeah it doesn't cost anything you know they're just lining up with the right issues but but you that were, were cash in bitter tears right he's he's doing an album that doesn't fit with the times it's 1964 he's got to fight for it for airplay he's burning some bridges with with the people that are going to make his next album or play his next album and so he's he's putting some he's spending some of his capital his social capital to kind of make that statement um but yeah you could go too far too mm. um i think i think some of those early folk singers i don't know if you watched that documentary um, on a PBS about country music. I'm not. I've heard it's very good, though. Yeah, but in the early episodes, they talked about how some of those early folk singers, like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, um, and there's another connection with uh, Springsteen, right? Because you have the Seeger Sessions albums that he did. Oh yeah, kind of honoring that folk music tradition. And they talked about how they at the in the early generation they didn't have a genre called country music that had to be invented Mm -hmm. and so early on it was just kind of hillbilly music and the folk music of that time was mixed in there and so there's a but there was a moment where that folk music had gotten a little too political and so they kind of cut it out as a separate genre it should all stay together because the early music like with the carter family was all all country hillbilly folk music but they carved out folk as a separate genre from country and so now we have folk and country, hmm. even though their roots are identical. Yeah. And the reason for that split was because the folk artists were a little too political for places like the Grand Ode Opry, you know, kind of institutionalized southern voices. And so – So we literally created genres based on art and commerce, right? Exactly. Like art get, folk gets to be art while country has to be commerce. Yeah, that was exactly right. People wouldn't tune in because the, the Grand Ode Opry was – a grand uh i think i think they were shelling insurance the grand old opry was just a uh an ad big a big advertisement for an insurance company mm. um and uh and so you can't get too political if you're trying to sell a product um and so yeah so those all that to say is those early folk musicians um decided to speak the truth and they and they paid a commercial price for that yeah, uh, because of that. they were kind of functionally cut out of the of the this new genre and this new industry called country music. Hmm. So so cash. So kind of help help me sort of trace the the narrative trajectory. So at what point does he have the most amount of social capital? Like when 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 does he have the cachet to be able to just walk into his record studio and say I'm making I'm I'm going to make a protest album or I'm going to I'm going to say a thing I want to say and they kind of don't have the power to stop him or is that ever a thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he had to fight to get bitter, bitter tears done, um, obviously, and or at least on the air. Yeah. I, there, there wasn't a huge um, uh, uh, push for him to do at Folsom Prison. 
um, he had to fight for that as well. I was going to say that seems like a big risk also, like recording a live album in a prison. Yeah. But then it became really successful. So that's 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 how this is a bit of a moving target. Mm. Um, it's kind of how like it's like alternative music. So there was a season when it's alternative and then it becomes mainstream. And then so you have to. And, and so that's the issue, right? The, if the margins, if the gospel is always found in the margins, that's always going to be a bit of a moving target. Um, it's it's never a settled, stable system. And so we're going to have to keep, you know, arts that way, right? Because the thing that was the innovation in one season has now become the thing everybody does. And so you, the, the next generations of artists or even something like a Springsteen or Cash has got to figure out a way to kind of step out of the the very genre or the very kind of music they've already created. Yeah. And so there's that constant questing to kind of find a new voice, a new perspective on things. So I think there were there were cycles of that for Cash. So I think the first cycle was he he when he he had a lot of popularity at Sun and he went he wanted to do some of these concept albums. Um like the first one was called Ride This Train. And uh that wasn't commercial enough for Sun. So that was one of the reasons why he left pretty early Sun Studios to go to Columbia to rec start recording these concept albums. Ride This Train was one of them. Bitter Tears was one of them. Um, and, and and so he kind of spent his capital on those albums. And then um, and then he did a uh, – his career kind of was on the downswing. He did At Folsom Prison and that kind of real, you know ignited his career. You can in many ways – argue that at San Quentin, the follow-up album was just almost a cash grab after at Folsom prison where Folsom prison was like this statement. It was so, it got so big. Mm. They just rebooted the project and he just came out the very next year with at San Quentin. And so a lot of people th would argue, and I would agree with this and Robert Hilburn, the, the kind of the definitive biographer of cash would say that, you know, at Folsom prison is the raw, it's a little bit rougher and it's recording. Um, that like that's that's the quintessential prison album at San Quentin was just a really quick cash grab almost right after that because mm. he was just in the uh, I love that album to be clear and that's <laughs> a fame and that's a famous album because it has a, a boy named Sue on it and so that's a favorite cash song obviously but uh, um, so even even amongst those prison albums you can kind of even see that kind of tension between being prophetic. Um, versus being commercial. I'd argue that At Folsom Prison is more prophetic, cutting edge, nothing ever like that had been done. But then once the prophetic became really marketable, Cash and the company said, well, let's, let's, let's do it again. Yeah. You know, and then they did At San Quentin. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit more polished. And But, but there's some great moments on At San Quentin. I don't want to completely throw it under the bus. I'm just saying it's complicated. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, and like you said, like, and everything is edgy until until everybody and until it becomes widely accepted and then all of a sudden edgy becomes the thing everybody just expects from like you just do that do more of that it's like it's like the difference between getting the ramones album when it first comes out and then hearing a ramones song in a car commercial right yeah. it, and and so like you've got and, and if johnny cash's whole sort of point of view which it seems like it was was to continue to challenge the way people see the world and to, and to continue to like throw a spotlight on things that we're not looking at and it works. And then people begin to demand that from him again, just like give us more songs from prisons. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden it, that becomes the thing that was the challenge becomes sort of I don't, like a marketing tool. And yeah. that's, um, 
like you said, that that is, that is super complicated. And I, I think, again, as a Springsteen fan, I think about this all the time with the albums. Like, um, I, I think I was just talking about this a couple of days ago with somebody else, but um, Born in the USA comes out in 1984, and it's this massive juggernaut, like one of the biggest albums of all time. It turns him into a global superstar. And the thing that he puts out next is this very small divorce record that I'm, I'm not going to say nobody bought it. It was, it, it, it was received, but it was not received at the level. And I'm sure there was somebody... At, I think it was Columbia, actually. I think they have the same record label. I'm sure there was some guy chomping on a cigar in an office somewhere saying, can somebody please sit down with Bruce and explain to him that we need another Born in the USA? You know what I mean? And yeah. and just the continual sort of like like zigzag running, like bobbing and weaving. Uh, this is what they want from you, but this is what you've given them instead. Like to, to live your whole life like that because you have a thing you want to say. And to still be kind of successful as obviously cash was um that's that's hard and maybe that's why we continue to talk about him today because he somehow found a way to say the thing he wanted to say in spite of all the reasons he could have had to not you know and and to just keep like doing more albums from prisons and and to not do bitter tears or um all all the different options he would have had to just continue to be a mainstream like basically the next elvis or like a roy orbison type or something like that yeah, I think I think we're always the thing I mentioned. To, I think Luke brought up kind of the pastoral prophetic mixture. I think preachers have to walk that balance. Like I need to, I need to, I need to feed my people and have them enjoy coming and listening and being fed. And sometimes I got to speak the truth to them. Yeah. And if I just kind of beat them over the head every Sunday, then then I might not be able to get a voice of them. But that's not dissimilar to any of us in in our world where we have we're picking our spots. Yeah. With, with, with anybody like we got to pick our spots with the truth and have to always kind of weigh is me being honest or speaking the truth to this person in this relationship at this moment of time going to be worth the cost and sometimes it is we say the truth we bear the cost we carry the cross there and sometimes we go you know right now it's not it's not worth it and so we you know we smile and we're polite and we go along and I think we're always negotiating that tension in small intimate ways and also in big creative kinds of ways about when, you know, when is the truth appropriate and is it worth the cost? Let's talk a little bit about Give My Love to Rose. I really loved, like that might, it's possible that that's my favorite chapter in the book. The chapters three through 10, that that big middle section that you have in there, that's it. That's the part of the book that really like got me. Like every chapter was, was its own sort of like new journey and new challenge, but Give My Love to Rose. And maybe because again, um, this is, one of the only Johnny, Johnny Cash songs that Bruce Springsteen has covered. And it's great. It's it's one of my favorite uh, Cash songs. And you take this song, which is on its face, deeply tragic. It's it's a guy just got out of prison. He's on his way to see his family. He gets like run over by a train, I guess, but he still has no, the he, he just dies on the railroad tracks. Okay. Cause I always sort of like the subtext I always thought was like, did he get hit by a train and still is able to like verbalize, like, I'm not quite dead, but I'm pretty close to it. So. Like, like to be able to be hit by a train and then be able to say to somebody like, "Hey, I'm definitely about to die. Can you like pass along a message?" For me? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, but yeah, that makes more sense. Like he's that part is I read that into it. So he hasn't necessarily been hit by a train. He's about to die on the railroad tracks, and and he says to the narrator, "Can you please pass along a message? Can you take some take this message along to my wife and son to, for me because I'm not going to make it." And that always felt like one of the most tra- – like you could spend all this time in prison and then get out, and before you, you make it home, you die. Um, and, and that you take this song, which is so sad and so tragic, and you reframe it, and you almost flip it as a way of saying, like, look at the opportunities we have to offer kindness to somebody who cannot offer it back to us, who has no social capital and who has nothing to give left. 
And the idea of maybe this is the challenging Jesus-oriented message that we find in a lot of Cash's music, which is we always have the option to to pass along, to, basically to give to give his love to Rose. You know what I mean? Or to, mm-hmm. to to carry something with us on behalf of someone who cannot carry it any further. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to that and like what? Just I mean, talk talk about the ideas that you sort of un, unfold in that chapter. Well, I mean the 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 origin of the the song Give My Love to Rose was Cash was playing a concert out in California and uh, there was a guy who just got out of prison and he didn't have enough money to get back to Louisiana uh, where his wife and kids were. So he had to stay there in California and earn enough money to get a train ticket to get back home. And he knew Cash was on his way to Louisiana to play the Louisiana Hayride. And so he told Cash after the concert, hey, um, you're going to get to Louisiana before I can get there. So when you get there, can you, if you see my wife, and uh, my my family, could you just you know pass on my my love to them? And that that request so haunted Cash that he used it to to write this song, "Give My Love to Rose." There's a there's an ex-convict who's dying on a ra- you know down by the railroad track. Whether or not he's been hit by a train or not, we'll leave that to the backstory. Of I'm this. thinking not. If you're if you're hit by a train, you're not you're, dead. you're not making yeah, requests. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's just been clipped by the train. Maybe that's it. Maybe uh, just it winged him. Yeah, so he's down by the railroad tracks dying, and the narrator of the song goes to the dying man, and he hears his final words, and his final words are, you know, get, here's my money, uh, take it to my my wife and child, my son, and you know, give my love to Rose. So, so yeah, it's a really sad song about a dying ex-con on but down by the railroad track. And so again, here's not a very commercial song. Like, mm-hmm. like at the time, Sun Studios was wanting cash to pump out music that like uh jerry lee lewis and roy orbertson and uh buddy holly and elvis were pumping out right yeah teeny bopper songs to to you know you could dance to and cash is singing single, this song yeah. about an ex-convict dying on the railroad tracks <laughs> so you right. know, it's not like a big jukebox song hey let's go let's go dance at the sock hop to uh because this is the 50s right give yeah. my love to rose but yeah so the, I use the song, though, because it is in the middle of this long section of the book on kind of like solidarity standing with the margins. And the typical frame that we have when we think about those words, solidarity with the margins, is kind of a social justice frame. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bitter Tears is you know, a good example of that as well. And so this, the reader is kind of settling into kind of, yeah, social justice. But Give My Love to Rose is, a, is in a more intimate act of kindness where the narrator is passing on this dying request of this man. And so I wanted to use the chapter to highlight the, to, to, to highlight those personal, more tender moments where uh, we stand with each other in our pain and in our brokenness. That it's not always protesting the injustice activists would, but it is uh, in the tender moments of care and compassion and kindness that we extend to each other. And so I, I will use that chapter in that song to kind of highlight um, the tender side of love and the tender side of solidarity with uh, th- those who are hurting. Um, to So we just don't always snap into social justice as the way to fix the world. Sometimes social justice um, needs to get, I think, uh, humanized and, and and brought down into the intimate acts of kindness that we experience in day-to-day life. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, and to use Give My Love to Rose as the framing device to enter into that conversation, 
that that is what makes this book great. That's why that is why everyone needs to read this book is because, like I said, I've heard "Give My Love to Rose" a hundred times, but I never in my life thought this is a challenge to anybody who comes across a stranger on the train tracks. Right? This is it's it's almost like a Good Samaritan narrative. And, yeah. But I didn't see it that way. I always saw it through the eyes of the guy who's about to die, and so I always saw it as sort of like this awful tragedy, without without the inclusion of of the invitation to to do someone a kindness. In the in the midst of it, which obviously, yes, obviously, that's what's going on in that in that song. And thank you for pointing that out to me. Thank you for like deepening my love for the, for a song that I already really really loved. Were there any songs? Because e- each chapter sort of focuses around in one way or another a different song. Were there any songs that you had like that you thought I'm definitely going to write a chapter about this? But as as the final product sort of like took shape, you realized that we just don't have room for that one. Or were there any songs that you just really wanted to write about that it didn't? But it just didn't uh, manifest. Oh, that's a good. Oh my goodness, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think there's tons of songs that that could have been used. Um, there's a I, I, the song I wish I could have used for Bitter Tears actually was not you know the ballad of Ira Hayes. Um, the song that I like the most on that album is Apache Tears mm. um, for a couple reasons. One, Apache Tears I think is more heartbreaking It's because it recounts kind of the abuse and the rape of a Native American woman at the hand of U.S. soldiers, um, which is obviously horrific, but I think gets to the darkness of what that album is trying to speak towards. And it was also a cash original where mm. the ballad of Ira Hayes was a cover but the ballad of the Ira Hayes was the song that he uh, was trying to get on the airwaves, and so it, it made sense to lead build the chapter around that particular song. So there were songs I might have picked that were a little bit different than the ones that I that I uh, I did pick because of where they were, you know, how they function in his story and his biography. Um, yeah, there there are there are songs like that he covered uh, during the Rick Rubin years that are just amazing. That that uh, I just didn't know what the theological take would be. Like for example, "Boy Named Sue." I probably, in retrospect, should have figured out a way to get a boy named Sue in there. Um, Do a chapter on toxic masculinity. Well, I was thinking of it. No, not really. I was thinking about <laughs> about like. Uh, so part of the hard part of the book too, what is is if you if for those who haven't read it yet is, is I'm also kind of each chapter is topical, built around a song, mm-hmm. and yet um, I'm also telling the story roughly chronologically as well. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And so that was that was a bit of the mix. And so I pro- on retrospect, I would have probably used a boy named Sue to talk about his troubled relationship with his father. So <laughs> if you don't know his story, Cash's story, he his younger brother Jack died in a horrific saw accident. And his father blamed Cash for that the accident happening. Um, it doesn't make any sense why he blamed him. Uh, Cash was trying to take his brother Jack fishing that morning, and Jack didn't come along. And so it I think it was just his his father's grief speaking. But somehow, like if you had gotten your brother to come along with you that day, he wouldn't have died in the the the, the, cha- the, the saw accident. But anyway, Cash had this really troubled relationship with his father, and this is really highlighted in the movie "I Walked the Line" mm. with Joachim Phoenix. You can see that really played out. And so, a boy named Sue, though, if you if you'll just listen to it, it's a it's a comedy song. Yeah. But it's a it's about a troubled relationship with a dad. Um, I I don't know. If I could have pulled that chapter off because 
the song is a joke song, but it but Cash's relationship with dad was really traumatic. So that that's a disjoint between the joke song and the heaviness of what we're talking about with his dad. And a boy named Sue just isn't synchronized with the chronology because I, I would want to talk about his troubled relationship with his dad, you know, earlier on in the book. So I've, I teased around with whether or not a boy named Sue should have made the book and I could have used it that way um, uh, to talk about his relationship with his dad. I almost feel like that probably should have devoted more of a chapter in the book. But yeah, that was the one – that's the one song and chapter. And, and, and mainly I'm, I'm, I'm pulling on that song just because like that's such a class, classic cash standard. And I guess Ring of Fire will be the other one as well. Yeah, that's so true. Like, yeah, the two songs, you know, Boy Named Sue and Ring of Fire, uh, like as far as just hits, mm-hmm. I, I could have built – and I could have maybe built a chapter around his troubled relationship with women around Ring of Fire um, because it was actually written by June Carter Cash, his wife, about their early romance. Yeah. Uh, but that's his second marriage. He was married to Vivian first and then – The person he was supposed to walk the line for. Exactly. So yeah. I could have maybe done a chapter on, on, on his troubled love life using Ring of Fire. Did he? Did he have any songs that were like more in the earnest vein about his relationship with his dad? I'm, I'm drawing. I'm, I'm thinking again more Springsteen overlap because anybody who's spent any time listening to Bruce Springsteen knows like <laughs> he has a lot of songs about his troubled relationship with his dad. In fact, um, on on his deathbed, Bruce asked his dad. What what were some of my favorite songs of yours? And his dad said all the ones that were about me, and and it turns out there's a bunch of them, and and they're all either angry or very sad. None of them are funny, like Boy Named Sue. And so, are there any songs that Johnny Cash wrote that sort of have that sort, same sort of like Independence Day, Adam Ray's Decane sort of um, vibe to them that really did sort of dig into his relationship with his dad? Or is that is that a thing that he just never really dealt with in his music? I don't think he. I mean, here's the thing is he, he's written a lot of music, so it's possible that I'm, I'm missing something. But it, but as, as far as I know, there's not a ton of music that he did that was that kind of confessional mm-hmm. about, about his relationship with his dad. Um, he spoke about his dad for the most part in very positive terms. It was only kind of in quieter, uh, more intimate moments where he let some of that pain uh, like like come out. So, But I also just think that was just – a product of his time where I yeah. think that kind of dealing with father issues is, is kind of a recent phenomenon. I don't think anybody would have even named it that way back in Cash's time. So I do think there's a generational difference about a willingness to kind of go back and deal with some sort of father trauma that that uh, Springsteen's generation all the way till now are more, more likely to kind of think in those terms than I think Cash's generation was. How fascinating is that, by the way? Like, I mean, you, you're a you're a psychology guy, and like, just the idea of like Johnny Cash dealt with some of the most like gut wrenching human like he dealt with like murder, and um, there, he, like you said, he has a song about rape. He has a song about like there's all sorts of like really really dark thematic stuff that he deals with. But the idea of talking about his own relationship with his dad that's too like that's too raw. Like, how fascinating is that? You know what I mean? Like. That like he, he can go anywhere, but the idea that he would write a sincere song about his struggle with his own dad, which clearly was a big part of his life, that that the idea of that was like, I mean, we, we'll just do a boy named Sue. It's funny, you know what I mean? <laughs> like like he cannot yeah, yeah. go any deeper than that. 
I mean, well, I mean, I, I mean, that's not dissimilar for most of us, right? You know, we can go lots of different places, but then when it gets real personal and real close to our own pain and our hurt, that we can get, we can get really evasive and in denial about it. So, yeah. in that sense, I think he's kind of really human. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I feel like I have to ask this this question: What is your favorite Bruce Springsteen song that Johnny Cash covered? <laughs> um, oh, I, you know, I, I I blanked on it. It was uh, what's the one about the the uh it's the it's the policeman song with the brother highway um, patrolman yeah highway patrolman that's the correct so, answer i would have also accepted johnny 99 but highway patrolman's the correct answer well what's fascinating <laughs> about that is that cash after his his success in um the early 70s with so 80 68 is at Folsom prison 69 is at San Quentin and he kind of reaches peak cash in the culture and in 70 and 71 he actually gets a you know an evening primetime variety show mm-hmm. so he's on network television for a year or two there and so he's at kind of peak johnny cash but then after that i mean the minute they give you a variety show in primetime your kind of cultural relevance is almost it's on a it's on the clock, right? The, the kids are not buying your records anymore. Exactly. If their parents he, are watching he, you on TV. Exactly. It's, he's 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 in the, he's starting into the nostalgic phase of his career at that point, and so in the eighties, it's called his lost decade. Yeah. And he he doesn't record anything of note. However, critics say that in the mid eighties or early eighties, he recorded one album they thought was his best creative effort, and it's called Johnny Ninety Nine. Obviously taken from the the Springsteen um, uh, song, and so he records. So not only does he name the album Johnny Ninety Nine, he covers Johnny Ninety Nine on the album, and he covers Highway Patrolman on the same album. So he does two Springsteen covers on that same album, mm-hmm. and it is a very clear admission, I think, by Cash that he saw in Springsteen kind of the art that he wanted to be doing right like he saw springsteen giving voice to the same kind right he saw like something like highway patrolman what he was doing with at Folsom prison and give my love to rose mm-hmm. 20 years 20 years before and um and he was i think he was trying to capture some of that springsteen magic by covering some of his songs and and, and going back to his roots trying to articulate music from the margins uh, the way he saw Springsteen doing. So I think I think it was like a huge kind of hat tip of respect that he titled the whole ar- album Johnny 99. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Highway Patrolman and is like my favorite Springsteen song. I don't blame you at all for that. It's it's one of my top ones also. Yeah. I love that song. And and I just love that whole album. I just think Nebraska is just like one of my top 3 albums all time. Well, and I mean, as a Johnny Cash guy, that makes a lot of sense because like it feels like it feels like Nebraska is Bruce Springsteen's attempt to make a Johnny Cash album in a lot of ways, yeah. right? Like, and not unlike Ghost of Tom Joad a, a decade and a half later, where where he's well, and, and again, that was another opportunity he had. That's that album sits release that that album is released between the River and Born in the USA, and so like these two massive commercial juggern- juggernauts, and Springsteen puts these songs together, and the story behind that album is he all those songs were written as um, contenders for inclusion on Born in the USA. And so Bruce sits down on the edge of his bed and records all those songs into like a, like a four-track recorder and decides, because it was supposed to be just a demo, and he just decides, I'm just going to put the demo out and call it Nebraska. And again, imagine being the record executive. It's like, 
maybe don't do that. <laughs> maybe maybe let's go into the studio, let the E Street Band like work these these up and make some money instead. And he doesn't. And yet he didn't tour on it either. And so it goes back to sort of that like I, I think he was taking a lot of cues from Johnny Cash's previous work and saying, no, what the thing I want to say is more important than how many records we sell. Yeah. You know, and it paid off. Like, I mean, to, to this day, Nebraska scene is one of his great albums. So, yeah, I, I, I'm totally in agreement that Highway Patrolman is, um, is, is such a good song. Um, I did, I, I, meant to, I meant to get to this earlier, but you, I, I think the, the first major revelation that you make in the book is that yours and Jana's go-to karaoke song is Jackson. Oh, yeah. Um, how often does that happen, that you guys are singing? As, as often as we can sing it together. Yeah. And so, in fact, my wife's 50th birthday is, like, on Saturday. Yes. And so we're having karaoke at it, and we're going to sing Jackson. Oh, my gosh. Is anybody going to – is there film of this? I need to see this. I don't – I'm sure somebody will, like, pull out a phone <laughs> and put it on – and put it on a uh, YouTube, you know, or not YouTube, but on Facebook or something like that. But like, yeah, anytime there's a karaoke, we'll go up and sing Jackson together. I love that. That's a yeah. that is a great karaoke song. So w- was that always the case, even before you started researching Johnny Cash, or in in your research of this, did you discover that y'all could really like crush it with? A well, I think so. Jan is a theater uh, teacher, so she's got some great musical theater chops. Uh, I am only marginally good at it, but I, I you know I play a little bit of guitar. And so I think it originated in that I just started during this whole season of immersing myself in Johnny Cash. I just started um, because Johnny Cash songs are pretty simple to play. Mm -hmm. And so I would just, you know, download music and I would play Folsom Prison Blues or I'll walk the line. And one day I started downloading Jackson and Jana likes, you know, depending on the song to if I'm playing in the living room to just sing along. And so that was one of the songs that we just kind of, you know, if I started into Jackson, she would sing her part. I would sing my part. And then the first time I think we were at karaoke, we kind of realized, hey, that's a duet. Yeah, that's a duet, you know. So we we did that. And now we just, yeah. If you get a, if you get a live mic in front of Jan and I, we're going to sing Jackson. That is, that's my favorite <laughs> thing ever. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, yeah. Well, I know you've got to go soon. So I, really quickly, just to sort of like land the whole thing. Because I could talk for another hour about Johnny Cash and Bruce Springsteen. So can you uh, real quickly give us your top five favorite Johnny Cash albums? If people are listening and they're thinking, like, I need to do a deep dive on Johnny Cash, what what are the five albums that you would say, this is where you should start? Or these are just your personal favorites? So I would start with uh, Live at Folsom Prison. Mm-hmm. That is considered by critics, Rolling Stone, one of the greatest albums in music history. Not yeah, just Johnny their, Cash. It's on their top yeah. 500 Rolling Stone list of all time. Yeah, so start start with um, um, At Folsom Prison. I think the second album would be his very first one. Um, if you want to hear like Sun Studios, early Johnny Cash, 1950s, uh, Johnny Cash and his hot blue guitar. That is his very first album. What's great about that album is it has Give My Love to Rose on it. It has A Walk the Line. It has Folsom Prison Blues. So that's like early, early Johnny Cash. I did not realize Give My Love to Rose was on his debut album. I think it is. That's it's amazing. All- that they let him do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they didn't record albums back in the day. They were just recording singles. And so, oh, yeah, okay. in fact, uh, Johnny Cash and his hot blue guitar is famous not just in Cash lore but also in music history because that was the first LP that Sun Studios ever put out. Really? Yeah. Uh-huh. They were I just putting out singles. That. So their first LP produced by Sun Studios, right? So this is Sun Studios of like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison and Jerry Lee Lewis 
in Memphis, Tennessee. So their first LP is um, Johnny Cash's Hot Blue Guitar. I think Give My Love to Roses on there. Um, so I would do that if you just want to hear early cash. I'd start. That would be my second one. My my third pick is uh, Orange Blossom Special. Um, I, I just like that one just because of the song selection on it. And that's where he starts kind of dabbling in the folk scene. He covers a couple of Dylan tunes mm. um, on that album as well. Um, my fourth one would be um, American Recordings, the very first uh, Rick Rubin um, album that he recorded. It's all acoustic, really stripped down. It was the thing that kind of relaunched Cash's career after that lost decade of the 80s. Yeah. And so some classic standouts on there is Delia's Gone. This He, he opens up – Ruben opens up this first album with this chilling murder ballad. And it's like you hear that opening song. You go, uh-oh, the man in, ba- the man in black is back. Yes. Uh, that song. You know my daughter's name is Delia? Is that right? Yeah. We so, didn't. I didn't intend, or we. Did, I don't think we intentionally named her after a famous murder victim from the 1900s. But you know, here we are. Yeah, there you go. But I do love that song. Yeah. yeah. So those are my. At that point, I would either for the fifth that might be harder, because um, I got a lot of albums that I like at that point. But I would probably put Bitter Tears in there just because of what it. Just I think it's quintessential cash speaking yeah. for the margins. Well, and I mean, what what a great. And and talk about something that has a lot of staying power. And and one of the conversations we have on this podcast a lot is the difference between timely and timeless or relevant, like relevant in the moment and something that has a a longer shelf life. And an album like Bitter Tears, like if if you say somebody wrote an album about how a group of people, specifically indigenous people in the U.S., have been disenfranchised, that album could have come out in 1964 or it could have come out today. You know, because this is still part of the conversation and we're still like one of the one of the books sitting on my shelf that I'm trying to get to is a book that came out this year. And it's called I think it's called like The Heart of Wounded Knee. And it's it it is sort of like a retelling of the history of like the disenfranchisement of indigenous peoples in the U.S. And the idea of we still have not dealt with this. This is still a thing that we have to talk about. And Johnny Cash has been like. For 50 years now, like Johnny Cash has been trying to bring that into the conversation. And only just now are some people even beginning to pay attention. So Yeah, it would be great if people could could uh, rediscover that album because I think, like you said, it's a lost gem mm-hmm. um, in his in his uh, dis- discography. I had, I had no idea that it existed until I read your book. Like to me, that was one of the great values of the book was to go through and like to, to kind of re relearn a lot of the things that are sort of like part of the cultural zeitgeist about Johnny Cash, but also to, to dig into like these albums that maybe nobody talks about as much as they probably should like bitter tears or mm. um, what was the other one? Ride the strain. Like, like these albums that really probably should be part of our conversations a lot more than they are, especially in, in terms of like music and the history of like rock and folk and all these other things. Um, Man, I know we're out of time. There's so many things we didn't even get to talk about. The man comes around, which is one of my top five Johnny Cash songs, um, and the entire the entire final chapter is a breakdown of that song. And so I'll just leave it with that, so that everybody can, who's listening can just go buy the book and see what the, that's all about because that song is so good and the chapter is fantastic. So, um, any any parting shots? Anything that we didn't get to that that um, we should have? No, I just just hope people take check the book out because I think it's just a great read about music. Um, but I also think it's supposed to kind of be uplifting and uh, hopeful in many ways. And so uh, hopefully it affects people kind of 
personally too, not just an interesting read about music, but it, but they find it personally impactful for their lives. That's my hope that that somebody walks away with, like you said, the chapter on "Give My Love to Rose." They, they leave with something that that might might you know change their life a little bit. I got to say, there are several chapters in this book that I felt that way about. That I I put it down and I thought, like, I can't believe, like, because this is a song I've I've heard, again, a hundred times. I can't believe, I feel like I'm just now hearing it for the first time, thanks to your sort of read on it and how you wrote about it. So thank you. Thank you for writing this book, really. This is truly one of the best books I've read in a while. So thank you for that. That's great. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And um, we'll be back in your feed with... Uh, another Patreon interview at some point pretty soon. So everybody uh, take care and we'll see you soon.